If you are here today for the first time, thank you for being a part of our service here at Soma Eastside. We just want you to know that you are loved, that you are welcome, that you are a part of this family. And this is a great day for us because on the last Sunday of the month, we typically keep all of our family together. So kiddos, you guys are in with us today. Teens, you guys are in with us today. And we're so glad to have you. We're continuing in a series called Prepare the Way, Encounters with Jesus. And I want to ask you a question. How many of you guys uh, like to ski, snowboard, go to the mountain? Okay. Have you ever, raise your hand if you've ever gotten stuck on a chairlift. Okay. It's, it's an unsettling feeling, right? About several, several years ago, about 2008, uh, I was in North Carolina. And by the way, if you complain about the, the summit at Snoqualmie, you know, you really should just keep your mouth shut because when you get to the East Coast, the skiing on the East Coast is nowhere compared to what we have here in the PNW. But I was skiing on a tiny little mountain in North Carolina, and it was a dense, dense fog. The wind was blowing. It was brutally cold, and we were kind of wrapping up a day with not-so-great conditions. And we were on one of those tiny little two-person chairlifts, you know what I'm talking about? When all of a sudden, the chairs just came to a stop. Now, to give you a little bit of a picture, this was a dense fog. We could not see more than 15 feet in front of us, so we couldn't see the chair in front of us. We couldn't see the chair behind us. We could barely see the ground. And for the next hour or so, we just sat on that chair swinging and shivering wondering if we were ever going to be rescued. And just when it seemed like we had lost all hope, out of the dense fog, out of the deep dark, arrived two members of the ski patrol. And one was holding a large pole, probably about seven or eight feet tall. And he said, we're here to rescue you. And this is how we're going to do it. He said, At the top of this pole, there's a a large rubber band that we use as a slingshot, and we're going to stick a rope in the pouch of the slingshot, pull it back, fire the rope over the cable on which your chair is swinging, and then we're going to lower a harness down to you. You're going to stick the harness underneath your armpits, and then you're going to get off of the chair, and we're going to lower you down by hand. Some of you guys are feeling very queasy right now, and I'll admit, I also was feeling a little unsettled about this situation. Well, somehow I got the short straw on the chair, and I ended up being the first one to go, and I had to make a decision, right? In those kind of moments, you have to make a choice. Do I want to risk being dropped, having the rope snap, having these guys not be experienced enough to let me down? Or do I want to risk staying on the chair and hoping that one day it might start again, right? Well, I did take the risk of being lowered down by the members of the ski patrol. I got to the bottom. My buddy got lowered down. He got to the bottom. And we looked at each other and we said, wow, that was so cool. And then we said, hey, what can we do to help? And to our surprise, they said, actually, you can help us. Why don't you go ahead of us? 
Let the next chair know that we're coming to help you. And we're going to give you the pole and let you be the one to fire the slingshot with the rope over the, the, the wire and get it all ready for us to lower them down. I said, I like that. That sounds fun. So we took off our, our, our boots or we took off our, our board and all that kind of stuff, started walking down. After we had done this about two or three times, we got the hang of it. And I kind of developed this little slogan that I gave as soon as I appeared out of the, the fog to save the day. I said, hello, I have come with hope and a rope. And then I would explain to them what was about to happen. You know, I think about that story because today I want us to think a little bit about risky faith. And C.S. Lewis says something that I think correlates really well with the story that I just told and the story that we're going to learn about today. He said in his marvelous masterpiece, A Grief Observed, he said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. So let's talk a little bit about risk today. Risk is danger which lies outside of our perceived circles of comfort and security. And just like in that story that I told you, there is no story without risk. I would not be telling you this story if I had said, no thanks, I'll just stay on the chair. Right? There was, there was something about the need for risk for the story to have meaning and purpose. Right? And there's also no glory without risk. Right? Like I could not have gone down and helped other people and pointed them to the, the rescuer that was coming to them if I had not first taken a risk myself. And I think we all want to live a story that is worth telling. But what are you willing to risk to bring your story to life? I think one thing that's not talked about nearly enough in our suburban church today is that risk is at the heart of Christ. If you ever wonder why people say that church is boring, I mean, think about it. Think about all the miracles that Jesus has done. Think about all the miracles that Jesus is doing. Why on earth would church ever be boring? And the reason is, is because we have tamed Christ. We have made Christ safe and positive and encouraging for the whole family. Right? Like C.S. Lewis talked about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy asked Mr. Beaver about this lion, is he safe? Jesus is not a tame lion. And Mr. Beaver said, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
So as we enter into this story about risky faith, I want to, I want to ask you two invasive questions. Number one, what would you risk to, have, to get what you have always wanted? What would you risk to get what you have always wanted? And number two, what would you risk to rescue a dying friend? The great missionary C.T. Studd said, Christ wants not nibblers of the possible, but grabbers of the impossible. And so this story that we're going to read today is the story of the risky faith of four friends and the risky faith of a man who had nothing to lose. Now, I need to confess to you that before I started coming to, to Soma in about 2019, I had spent the previous 20-something years in a Southern Baptist church. So that means I, I love sweet tea, I love macaroni and cheese, and I come to, come to learn two things during my time in the Southern Baptist church. Number one, we serve a powerful God. Amen? And number two, God moves most powerfully through alliteration. I'm sorry, I, I can't help it. It's just that Southern Baptist in me, I have to alliterate my sermon. So today we're going to talk about a ground floor crowd, a great faith crew, and a grand forgiveness of Christ. So let's get into our passage this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, 1 through 12. And I'm reading from the ESV. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So let's talk about that ground floor crowd. Jesus has returned back to the town of Capernaum. This was a place where he had really made his ministry headquarters, and he had already done miracles in the town of Capernaum, so that when he returned the whole town was buzzing and everybody crowded in to this house. Most scholars believe that this house was either Peter's house 
or his mother-in-law's house. And Jesus was in the center of the house teaching and preaching to them. And it's interesting that it says that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as I was thinking about that picture, I just imagined, have you ever been in an elevator where it's completely full and then all of a sudden the door opens up on one of the floors and there's like five or six people waiting to get in and we're all kind of having this like conversation solely with our eyes about whether or not they're going to try to squeeze in or let the doors close, right? And I can imagine that when the, the four men with their friends showed up at the, at the door and they realized that there was not even a, a, a single inch to squeeze in, there was that same kind of conversation going on in their eyes. And the reason why was that Jesus was preaching the word to them. And the word here for preaching is the leo, which is uh, talking in a conversational tone. So there's two types of preaching, laleo and caruso, which is more of the proclamation. And in this particular instance, Jesus was interacting with the crowd, and, and, and as a result, he was attracting all kinds of people. Jesus attracted the religious, the curious, the desperate, and the earnest. And they were literally on the ground floor of this home. But you could say that figuratively, they were also on the ground floor of Jesus's ministry. It was just getting started. And everybody was excited to be a part of this first group that were following this radical new rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. I think we can all admit that there are times where crowds are really exciting. You know, there's nothing that draws a crowd like a crowd right? And you feel like you're a part of something when a crowd shows up. But crowds can also be an obstacle. We can be so focused on getting our needs met from Jesus that we may be insensitive or oblivious to those that are on the outside trying to get in and get help. And so, Soma, I think it's important for us to to make a mental note every time that we come to church, to to ask ourselves, are we being sensitive to those that may be new to this congregation, that are figuratively on the outside wanting to get in? Who do we talk to during our little breaks? Who do we talk to after the service? Are we looking for those that might need to be brought on the inside? There was a ground floor crowd, but we also see that there was a great faith crew. Again, Jesus was in Capernaum and everybody was gathering into this house and it came to to the attention of these four friends that Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the miracle worker, was back in town. And immediately they must have thought, we need to bring our friend, this, this man who was paralyzed, to Jesus because maybe Jesus can do something to help him. And I would guess that these men had already tried everything that they could think of. They had tried taking Jesus to doctors. They they had tried taking the paralyzed man to doctors. They had tried taking the paralyzed man to healers. They had tried every kind of medicine and every kind of mystical approach that they possibly could. And now, in their desperation, they thought, we've got to get him to Jesus. And so they 
went to their friend's house, and while they're taking the time to go to their friend's house, everybody else is going to where Jesus is. So by the time they get their friend, they carry him down the road to this house, it's already packed out. It's already full. There's no room for them. But they don't stop. They keep going. And their willingness to help their friend came at great effort. Think about how physically and emotionally exhausting it must have been to, to go and to get their friend and to carry them, carry him all the way back to the house only to get there and to realize that there's no way to get into the home. It came at great risk. These houses in that time were built of stone and had outside stairways that led up to a flat roof. And these roofs were made with joists covered with a mixture of mortar, tar, ashes, and sand. And so the, the, the scriptures say that they actually had to dig through the roof to lower their friend down. Now, just in case you were wondering, climbing up onto someone's roof and digging a hole through their roof was no more accepted then as it is now. Okay, so just imagine with me, you've got a Bible study at your house, an MC meeting, a women's meeting, a guys group meeting at your house, and there's a lot of people there. And then somebody shows up and they pull up in their Ford F-150 and they drive right onto your front lawn and they get out and they pull a guy out who's got a, a wheelchair and they roll him up to your house and knock on the door. You open up the door, you see the man in the wheelchair, and then you see the Ford F-150 with its you know tire marks all throughout your lawn. And there's probably a part of you that's thinking, I'm glad he's here, but did he really have to drive on my lawn, right? Maybe you're a little bit like Clint Eastwood with that grizzled face saying, get off my lawn. And I'm sure that there was at least a little bit of Peter's mother-in-law thinking, get off my house, right? It came at great risk, but it also came at great cost. I'm sure these men realized that by ruining someone else's house, that ultimately the bill was going to fall on them, that they were going to have to pay the damages. And they determined that it was worth the cost. We know what a soul is worth to God. The Bible says that God demonstrates his great love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What is a soul worth to God? It is worth the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what a soul is worth to God. But the question is, what is a soul worth to you? What would you be willing to pay to see a soul redeemed and rescued through Christ. They came by, at great cost and they came by great faith. This is such a fascinating part of the story where it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. You notice that? Jesus did not first pay attention to 
the man's faith. He paid attention to the man's friend's faith. They were a great faith crew. And the measures they went to were evidence of their faith in Jesus. You know, uh, in the book of Mark, there are 13 occasions where the word marvel is used. Where the word marvel is used. And that word marvel is thaumazo in, in the Greek. And, and it means to, to marvel or to be amazed by. And in almost every instance in the book of Mark, the word marvel is used to describe the people's response to something amazing that Jesus had done. But did you know that there are two times in the Gospels where it says Jesus marveled? Where Jesus was the one who was amazed, was marveling at something else. In both instances, have to do with faith. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, it says that Jesus marvels at the unbelief in Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, it says that Jesus marvels at the centurion and his great faith. So it would seem that there are two things that make Jesus marvel, and both involve our faith. Number one, when a non-religious person believes when no one expects them to. And number two, when religious people refuse to believe when there's every reason they should. That's what makes Jesus marvel, is either tremendous faith or stupefying lack of faith. They came by great faith and they came with great teamwork. I love that, that they, they didn't try to do this all by themselves. They did it as a team. You know, I think a lot of times we have this idea that if I'm going to do anything for God, I've got to do it by myself, right? That's like a solo mission. If I'm going to lead a friend to Christ, I've got to do it by myself. If I'm, if I'm going to make a difference in this world, it's all on me. But look at the, the four men here. They did it together. If any one of them had tried to bring their friend on their own, they probably would have never succeeded. But they worked together. They worked together and they believed that as a group, they could make an impact. What if you and a group of your friends worked together to bring a friend to Christ? What if together, with great effort, at great risk, with great faith, and at a great cost, you and your group were willing to go to great lengths to bring a friend to Christ. That's what these men did. And I think that's the invitation for us as well. That, that whether it be our missional community, whether it be our impact group, whether it be our women's group, whether it be our youth group, that we come together, we work together, we bring each of our unique gifts and skills that we bring to the table so that we might reach one. We can risk like this because we believe in number three, the grand forgiveness of Christ. The paralytic and his friends wanted Jesus to heal him physically. But Jesus knew that what the paralytic needed most was to be forgiven of his sins. 
You see, they came to Jesus with their felt needs. And Jesus addressed their spiritual needs. And I think that's a a principle that we can look at in a lot of different ways in our lives today. I, I go back to when I was 16 years old. When I first got invited to the local youth group that uh, was near my school, I showed up because I was new to this town. I had just moved from Seattle, Washington to Clearwater, Florida. I didn't have any friends yet. I didn't have any social circle yet. I showed up to this youth group because I was looking for friendship. I was looking to have fun. I was looking for good food. And the pretty girls didn't hurt either. But while I was there, God addressed the deeper need inside of me. And that was for a real faith that I had not possessed up until that point. As I began to spend time with those young people, I realized that there were some of them there who had a faith in Christ that was unlike anything I had ever seen or experienced. And God used that felt need to bring me into To bring me into the proximity with Christ so that He could address my spiritual need. And in many ways, that's uh, the same methodology that we use in the ministry that I lead called Impact Players. We talk about impact being about inspiring men to be great husbands, fathers, and leaders by equipping them to thrive in the relationships that matter most. And so we know that men are looking for camaraderie. We know that men are looking for community. They're looking for encouragement. They want to be better men. They want to be better husbands. They want to be better fathers and leaders. And so they're, they're willing to come into these environments for those reasons. But if you want to thrive in the relationships that matter most, it all starts with thriving in the relationship that matters most. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we, we find those felt needs and we use those to bring people into proximity to Christ to address the deeper spiritual needs. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus dealt with the man's felt need, his paralysis, by healing him of his deepest need, which was the need for forgiveness of sins. Now, just to be clear, this man was not paralyzed because he had sinned. This man was paralyzed because he was born into a world broken by sin. And you and I are also born into that same world. Every single one of us, when we enter into humanity, are born into a world that has been broken by sin. And we are just as in need of salvation and forgiveness of sins as this man who is physically paralyzed. Jesus came to repair the brokenness in our lives and in our world. Now, as we continue on this story, I want you to notice something. Sometimes you don't really know how important something is until you see how angry it makes other people. Have you ever noticed this? Like maybe if you're scrolling on social media and you find this post and there are like 150 comments underneath it, And you're like, why are they so upset? So you start kind of scrolling through the comments to try to figure out what's everybody so upset about. If Jesus had posted what he said here, he would have gotten 2,000 comments underneath it. Because what he said here had immense 
implications. And so what was it that Jesus said that, that upset the scribes so much? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, there are things that we can say as Christians that won't upset people very much. You can say, love your neighbor. Most people are going to be, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. You can say, be kind. And others will go, yeah, that's, that's good. I'm all right with that. They might, you might say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. Do your thing, Christian. But when you say, Jesus Christ is the only way to have your sins forgiven, now all of a sudden, look out. Because you just peed in someone's cornflakes. And that's what Jesus did to these scribes in that moment, was he peed in their cornflakes by saying, I, can, I have the power to forgive sins. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees understood that only God possessed the power to forgive sins. So Jesus was either the world's worst blasphemer, or he was indeed God. And for those religious leaders, they could not get their mind around that idea that Jesus was truly God. But Jesus was saying something very powerful in that moment. Only God has the authority to forgive sins, and that is who I am. So what does this say about Jesus? It says that Jesus alone has the power to forgive sins. Jesus is God alone. Jesus alone knows the thoughts and hearts of men. And Jesus alone has the power to heal in the most hopeless situations. The paralytic needed hope and a rope. He needed hope. He needed to know that Jesus understood him, that Jesus gets him. But he also needed to know that Jesus could save him that Jesus could change his life. And it was the paralytic's weakness that was his greatest strength. He recognized his need for a savior. This is fascinating to me. Think about this, that in this particular instance, on this one day, in this house, crowded full of people, Everybody listening to Jesus teach, everybody watching Jesus perform a miracle. And on that day, only one man walked out of that house with his sins forgiven. And it was the man who realized that he needed a savior. A man who realized that he was paralyzed and he had no hope and no help apart from Jesus Christ. I once was paralyzed. I once was unable to do anything, to move anywhere closer to God, to please God, to appease God, to, to be the man that God wanted me to be. I was completely paralyzed, unable to take a single step towards God. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are all dead in our trespasses. And it's only through Christ 
and faith in him that we can be made alive. But we have to be willing to admit our need and admit that we are paralyzed without Christ. When Jesus forgave this man's sins, he commanded the man to get up. Now just imagine that scene for a moment. This man has been carried to the house by his four friends. Just imagine how humiliating that life is like, being carried, being taken up to the top of the house. They dig a hole, they lower him through. Everybody is staring at this man. Everybody is watching to see what happens next. And Jesus says to him, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he has a decision to make. Because he knows that there are only two possible outcomes in this situation. Either Jesus is about to do a miracle, or I am going to be the punchline of the cruelest joke in history. And this man took a risk in faith. And he picked up his mat, he stood up, and he walked out. He took a risk. He could have said, I'm embarrassed. I'm scared that people might laugh at me if I try. I don't really know if Jesus can do what he's saying he can do. But without hesitation, the man stood up and he obeyed what Jesus had asked him to do. So here's our conclusion. I'll have Frank come on up and uh, continue to lead us in worship. What would you risk to get what you have always wanted. For this man, what he wanted most was to live a life of complete freedom, to live a life of being all that he believed he could be. And Jesus pointed out this truth that he had not fully realized himself, that to be the man that you want to be, to live the life that you want to live, it begins with getting your heart right with Christ, having your sins forgiven, being reconciled to God. Everything else comes after that. Would you risk to get what you have always wanted? And what would you risk to rescue a dying friend? What would you risk to bring a friend to Jesus? That's really at the the heart of our series that we're going through right now, prepare the way, encounters with Jesus, is that we really want to inspire us as a church family to be willing to take those risks, to do whatever necessary to help those that are outside become inside. Those that are paralyzed in their sin to be able to walk in freedom and in grace. What would you be willing to risk in order to help somebody come to know Jesus on a personal level. As we take our communion today, we're reminded that Jesus risked it all. He paid the price for our sin. He took uh, our punishment. And, And forgiveness is possible because Jesus shed his blood on our behalf. Restoration is possible. Because Jesus' body was broken so that we could be made whole. 
As you come forward, I want to encourage you to think about who might God want you to take a risk for. I'm so encouraged and inspired by the Figueroas who have been willing to take a risk in order to bring three children into their home and introduce them to Christ. What risks are you willing to take for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that at the end of the day, Lord, there's no risk that's not worth taking if it's done for you and for your glory. Lord God, you are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our faith. You're worthy of our all. God, I wonder if there are some folks here this morning, Lord, that are feeling a stirring in their soul to risk something so that you may be glorified and so that others may come to know you. Lord, I pray, God, that they would not shy away from that risk, but lean into it, knowing that that's what it means to be fully alive in Christ. Lord, I pray, God, that if there's anyone here today that has not taken that first initial step of faith, taking that risk to trust Jesus, that today would be the day that they come forward, Lord God, come to the altar, surrender their lives to you in faith, and begin a new relationship with you by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for them. Lord God, may we be a risky church willing to take on the audacious for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.